0: the Bane free radio hour.
1: On the podcast, turmoil strikes a star empire, more pieces of the Grantville puzzle, and tales of the war beyond the next. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today, we welcome a new interviewer to the podcast. Sean Patrick Hazlett has been on the podcast a few times, promoting the two anthologies he edited for Bain: Weird World War 3 and Weird World War 4. He is an Army veteran, speculative fiction writer and editor, and finance executive in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's a veteran podcast host as well. You can check out his podcast, Through a Glass Darkly, where he interviews national security experts, historians, writers, and other content creators on everything within the cultural zeitgeist. We are excited to have him as a part of the team here on the Bane Free Radio Hour. For his first interview, Sean spoke with David Weber, Jane Lindskold, Joelle Presby, and Jan Kotek, and Thomas Pope about the new Worlds of Honor anthology, What Price Victory. Today we will have part one of that interview, and part two will be next week. But first, the news. Let's take a look at the January mass market paperbacks. First up, A Call to Insurrection by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. Not long ago, the Star Kingdom of Manticore was a small, unimportant interstellar backwater. Now Manticore has become a target. The Star Kingdom isn't certain who is attacking it or why, but one thing is certain. Manticore needs a capable space navy and it needs allies, such as the relatively nearby Republic of Haven and the powerful, experienced Andermani Empire. Enter Travis Long and his wife Lisa. It is their task to build that navy. Opportunity for Manticore beckons if Travis and Lisa can manage to navigate the fires of interstellar insurrection. Next is Grantville Gazette 9, edited by Eric Flint, Walt Boyes, and Joy Ward. When a cosmic disturbance hurls your town from 20th century West Virginia back to 17th century Europe and into the middle of the Thirty Years' War, you have to adapt to survive, and the natives of that time period, faced with American technology and politics, need to be equally quick-witted, or at least survival-minded. Here's a generous helping of stories of Grantville, the American town lost in time and space, and its impact on the people and societies of a tumultuous age. And finally, we have Weird World War IV, edited by none other than Sean Patrick Hazlett. What if there were a war after Armageddon? How would the survivors emerging from World War III's radioactive slag heaps fight in this conflict? Wipe away the ashes of civilization and peer into a pit of atomic glass to witness the haunting visions of Weird World War IV from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. That's a call to insurrection. Grantville Gazette Nine and Weird World War Four, all available now in mass market paperbacks. And that's it for the news.
2: Welcome, everyone. I'm Sean Hayes with the Bane Free Radio Hour, and I am here with a tremendous group of authors to discuss the new Honorverse anthology, What Price Victory. I'm here with David Weber, Jane Linskold, Jan Katauch, Thomas Pope, and Joel Presby. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. So Good morning. Hi there. Hi Let's start with David. David, uh, I know, unless somebody fell off a rock, uh, this is probably not necessary, <laughs> but do you want to introduce yourself to the audience and uh us? Uh, Hi, tell I'm David us- Weber.
3: Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah. Um, I write science fiction, um, and I think that's probably enough. Go. <laughs>
4: Jane? He's David Weber. He writes really good science fiction.
3: Um, I like to think so.
4: <laughs> uh, I'm Jane Linscold. I write science fiction and fantasy. Um, I've got, I don't know, 30 something solo and collaborative works out there. I've collaborated with David Weber, Roger Zelazny, and Fred Saberhagen, um, and over 80 something short stories. And uh, I enjoy, I write for the fun of it. So this has been fun.
5: Oh, welcome Jane, Thomas. Uh, so I'm Tom Pope. I'm I'm one of the co-founders of U9. Um, we set everything up. Um, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago to support David, support support the Honorverse, um, and then sort of grew from there. Um, I I'm I don't know that I would call myself an author per se. I'm more of an author's assistant. Uh, I do a backstory generation and I write a lot about the books. I don't write a lot that goes into the books. So I su- okay, I support the let, novels. Let me, <laughs> let me let me
3: say this. Tom is always overly modest about his contribution uh, to the books. Um, He doesn't put the final words on the page, but every single word that Tim and I put on the page has gone through Tom. Um, And when it comes to, uh, how shall I put this, Uh, exterminating plot gerbils, Okay. Uh he's he's really, really good at that and on keeping us on strength. The final spine of every story that Tim and I have done has been as much Tom's uh as it's been me or Tim, uh hugely. Um so do not go around being overly modest, Thomas. Okay. I Sorry. stand chastised. Yes, well, that's why I had to speak up. Somebody had to chastise you. Okay. <laughs> Jan.
6: Hey, I, my name is Jan Kotouch. i I'm a Czech writer of science fiction and alternative history. I have about two, 20 books written in Czech language, and four of them have been translated into English. And I've also had short stories. And yeah, I'm one of the founders of David's Czech uh, fan club, or the On- Czech Honorverse fan club, which has since then uh, merged with TRMN.
2: Welcome, you, uh, Joel.
4: Hi, um, I'm definitely the newbie of this group. Uh, thanks to, to David and and support from from Tom and Jan and and also Jane has been incredibly supportive. Um, my first solo novel seems to be doing really well. Uh, the Dabray Snake Launcher came out in November, and and. Thank you to everybody. And I would also like to point out that David Weber also writes fantasy. In fact, there's a fantasy series called The Multiverse that that I co-wrote a novel with him, and we've got a contract for, you know, just three more books. So well, I, think <laughs> I, mean, I hope he continues to view himself as a fantasy writer. <laughs> I, I
3: think I think of that one more as science fiction. Not fantasy, but I did forget Northressa when we were. Oh, talking yes. About and that's an stuff. excellent
4: yeah. fantasy series. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I also think of that as science fiction, but the readers who come up to me think of it as fantasy, and I don't like to argue with readers who are buying the book. Wow. When, I first... <laughs> <It's fair. laughs> when I first met Weber, he uh, actually wanted to write epic fantasy. That was the direction he spent many long hours telling me about wizards and staffs and wands and galloping Mm -hmm. horses and, and all the rest. So I always think of him as both a science fiction and a fantasy writer as well.
2: All right. Well, let's uh, get into the meat here and let's start with the first story in this anthology uh, called Traitor and Tom, that's by uh, you and Timothy Zahn. And, uh, the tag I like to associate this one, uh, you know, I'll probably I'll probably butcher it, is kind of the the nectar of nepotism. You want to say a little bit a little bit about this and uh, just give readers a, a tease. I obviously don't give away the you know the,
5: you know the, the, yeah. So the the plot, the, the goal was. And and this is something that Tim could have answered a lot better because he he really you know he's the way we work is that I sort of build these foundations and I build these structures and we have we have this overarching story and then we talk about where we can put or this overarching you know piece of the universe the the, the bits here that I've been working on more um, in the past and and then we figure out you know where we can put interesting stories and this is one that he'd wanted to tell quite for quite some time you know he knew when he when we introduced Cutler Jenson in the very beginning that there was a there was a story there there's a reason why he was there there's a reason why he was doing what he was doing there is a reason for his even for his incompetence um in in the end uh and and so so for a long time this has been a story that we really wanted to tell and this seemed to be a really good place for it you know we didn't have any any prequel novels we didn't have any prequels to prequels to write so this seemed like a really good place to put that um and just sort of trying to introduce you know gustav andermann had so many people around him as he as he came into greatness and founded the empire and you know all the things he did and so this gave us a chance to tell a story about um the, you know, the pieces we don't see as much, like, you know, everybody talks in in the history books and honors time, everybody's talking about how how amazing and eccentric he was. But, you know, he was this crazy warlord who, you know, went a little bit off the deep end, but also founded this incredibly powerful empire that still lasts this to this day, and is a major, you know, major power in the honorverse. Um, But there's a lot of backstory to that. There's a lot of kind of the personal feelings. And so we get a chance to meet him and to meet his son and to meet some of the people around him. Oh, and that was a lot of fun to explore that.
3: One of the things that has been uh, really good about this short story and the entire series that the three of us are, are working on, subseries, is the way that it has allowed an expansion of uh, a reveal, if you will, uh, of the early history of the Andermani. Uh, who I've always thought of as one of the more interesting and eccentric corners uh, of of the honorverse. Um, when I was first thinking about doing anything that would be set this early in the honorverse, uh, I wanted it to have a different feel from the books that were written covering honor's time, that were all in in my voice. Um, and Tim, who had done uh, with Tom, uh, a short story for one of the earlier anthologies um, that was set in the right time period, has always been one of my favorite authors and a good friend, um, and so I asked him if he would be interested in, in working with me and Tom on this. It has been a Sisyphean task for Tim because he fe- he got sucked yes. into the Weber orbit um, which, yeah, everybody here knows what that means. You know? <laughs> uh, but I think he and Tom have done really, really well with this. Although I was a little bit surprised because I had expected to be spending, and and this is not a complaint, this is something that I'm happy about, but my original thought had been that we would be much more closely focused on Travis and staying at home with the events in the Star Kingdom without getting as deeply into what's going on uh, over in the Anderman Empire as we got. I think it's wonderful where we've gone because we're getting the development in the Star Kingdom that I wanted but yes. we're also opening this window wider than i had anticipated into the into the undermoney
5: than here. any of us had really i mean i didn't yeah. when we, when we started this when i wrote the original tech bible for the short story that turned into the tech bible for the series we didn't you know, we really didn't talk about them much. They were there. We knew they were there. We knew that Gustav was around, but it wasn't, it wasn't important until it started. It just sort of kind of evolved that way. Until it got we, important we, for Travis. <laughs> until it got important for Travis. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, we, we kind of found out the same time he did. It's like, oh, this, you know, there's, there are reasons to go here. And, and we've managed to, and we're starting to build more and more interesting connections that we didn't have mm-hmm. uh, between the empires in the early days, uh, between a, a the lot empire of people- and the Star Kingdom.
3: A lot of people have not yet picked up on the fact that uh, uh, Sinead Tarikoff, Avars Tarikoff's wife, is directly descended from both Chomps and Travis, um, and that the family yacht is named the Kaiser's Gift. It just, you know, if anybody's paying attention. <laughs> well,
2: one thing I really enjoyed about this particular story, Tom, um, is the way that a conspiracy forms, it's not, you know, if you read the history books of, you know, even our history, it always seems like, Oh, this is obvious. It was, this is obvious what the conclusion was going to be. Why would somebody do this? Why would they go through it? But it, but the, the story I think does an amazing job of looking at the nuance, looking at how a conspiracy is presented to somebody on the inside uh, and if you want to say more about that, or kind of how how you thought about that, and also just making people who are otherwise unsavory people kind of give them their their you know looking at the world through their lens and you know, allowing the, the reader to sympathize with that.
5: Oof! So the the answer I have a really short answer to that. That was all, Tim. <laughs> Um, Tim, Tim is brilliant at that. I mean, t- th- this is this is his superpower when it comes to yeah. writing. Um, and one of the reasons why I've always loved his writing is that be- he he can get into people's heads in a way and show things that um, that I you know I could I could sort of imagine it and it makes perfect sense at the end. But I don't know if I could ever build that. I can support it. Um, but that was very much him, just trying to. Especially the the backstory of, you know, we talked about. Of course, we knew, you know, where Gustav was, and we knew where, you know, that there's a lot of people are have to be looking kind of sideways at this guy who's mandating an entire, you know, a dead language, not a dead language, but a completely new language for the entire <laughs> empire, who's wearing literally powdered wigs around <laughs> and in dressing in period garb and thinks he is the reincarnation of Frederick the Great. Uh, you know, when you when we get to the second half of the story, we see his um um his home which is a direct replica of um uh, frederick the great's summer summer home um sans i believe but he's but um, gustav named it Sorgenfrei. it means worry free either way mm-hmm. um i figured he wouldn't gustav wouldn't have stuck with the original french um but we re- but it's it, it is exactly that we <laughs> i have a i have a map of that from some of the you know from some of the archives i have i someday i'd love to go visit there um because it looks like a beautiful place, and so we built this map, and I, you know, tried to figure out how he would use this, and then how he modernized it, how he put all of these things together, um, and you know how he, you know, how he lives there, but also uses that to run his empire. Um, so I did a lot of the work there, but when we really talk about the conspiracy and and how you know people are looking at him and how people are looking at what he what they think he's doing to the empire and to the navy and to to their future, uh, that's very very much Tim. Um, and I, I can't answer that nearly as well.
2: And if you have, you know, something to, what takeaway would you Dog. and if you spoke on, 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 on if you spoke for Tim? What, what <laughs> takeaway would you want readers to have of this particular story?
5: I think it's the. I think it's the understanding that. Um, Perceptions differ so much, uh, and what what one person sees is not what another person sees, and and sometimes that is forced. Um, sometimes we sometimes we lie. Sometimes we we do that on purpose, and sometimes it just is. Uh, and that's what I love about this story is just sort of seeing the same events through multiple eyes. Uh, and that again, this is what I love about what I've always loved about Tim's writing is is that is is that ability to show that
3: something that I had I've I've loved Tim's writing for a long time. Something that I hadn't realized until we started working together is that he never uses first person internal point of view, ever. And he still manages to get you inside the characters, what they're thinking and doing, okay, without ever having their actual thoughts exposed uh, to the reader, which is, is it's difficult to do. Um, I think it's his natural writing voice, uh, it would be incredibly difficult for me to do that. Uh, let me also just add that <clears throat> Tom's superpower uh, is keeping all of our balls in the air at once. Um, the other thing that had kept me from doing these earlier novels solo uh, is the, the need to make the technology three, 400 years less well-developed. Okay, because I had such a firm picture in my mind of what it was like it, by honors time. Okay, so backtracking to Tom and I did a lot of talking back and forth, because I had the, 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 the major points of how I wanted it to differ. In, in my head, but I hadn't worked through all of the implications of them and what it would mean for tactical doctrine. At the same time, something that Tim hadn't fully internalized when we started was that even though we're three or 400 years earlier than honors time, we're 700, 800 years into the development of interstellar warfare. And so he would come up with an occasional brilliant idea that somebody was going to have for the very first time in the novel. And we're like, you know they had 700 years to work on that so we need to incorporate the idea but how do we do it and we do it by having a character on the other side totally disregard the possibility that somebody is doing something because it's an old chestnut nobody would dare to do it and it worked beautifully but we had to kind of work around that because of the fact that we're coming at it from different perspectives on how long people have had
5: uh to to develop stuff exactly. um and we used and, one of those in the early part of the novel as well. There was there's a, a doctrinal change, or at least a, a doctrinal evolution, that was sort of part of the the core the the core of the early story.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and Dave, that that raises a actually a really good question. So, as an aside, in terms of this overall anthology, what's what's kind of the unifying tie between the stories? Is it kind of a a, a period in time? Is it uh earlier developments of of some of the the empires how would you describe it
3: i think that what this one is really about okay they're scattered in time okay uh tim's is from the area the the star kingdom ascendant period 300 400 years before honor's life uh joel's is from uh the time of the uh oyster bay uh the aftermath BD. of oyster bay yeah uh, Jane's is uh, from very close to the same time, about 50 years maybe behind or ahead, I think, of where Travis mm-hmm. is right this minute. Um, and uh, Jan's is uh, in Silesia uh, in the, the interval between really the shooting war between the Havenites, in the interval between. In, in during a, the high ridge piece.
6: i think it's a few months after the resumption of hostility yeah. yeah. new...
3: shortly after shortly after war of honor yeah. okay and mine um is set uh prob well it's set forty years before basilisk station because honor hasn't mm-hmm. been born yet almost almost fifty uh so there's chronologically we're kind of all over the the landscape here um the The main unifying trend is that these are all stories by authors who I, I like and wanted in the <laughs> anthology. Uh, but if there is a, an overlying theme to this to this anthology, I would say that these books are much less about wars than they are about the human spirit and coping with adversity okay Eve mm-hmm. Chandler is is put is putting herself back together again after devastating personal losses Joelle's character is uh, uh an expansion of of uh the character set in a way from her obligated uh was it um,
5: obligated service
3: I oblig, was obligated service um uh Tom's and and Tim's are, are, here we have, you know, how did Jinsone become who he became? You know, how did this all work out? Uh, Jane and I, uh, Jane more than me, because she basically did, did the story. Uh, it's a, an early period in Stephanie Harrington's life and, and, and her growth. Um, and that, I think, is probably the unifying theme, if there is one. Um, you're not going to get a lot of exploding starships um in this anthology yeah okay one of us one of us the check you know he had to okay um but but by and large this one is less concerned with with war despite the title Mm -hmm. than it is with how you achieve or fail to achieve victory on a much more personal level i think would you guys say that's fair yes
5: Yeah. absolutely yeah
2: yeah I, I definitely think that theme resonates throughout, and particularly interpersonal conflict and handling interpersonal conflict and what people learn about people and 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 how they change through these conflicts, I think is definitely an apt description think, of the stories
3: i think in 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 a lot of cases, it's what they learn about themselves that is 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 most most critical to what happens or, or in Jinzon's zone's case don't learn about themselves <laughs> uh what they what they lie to themselves about um, i think that would probably Jin zone is one of the people i most love to hate um, <laughs> and, well and and the reason is <clears throat> if you look at most of the villains in my my writing <clears throat> they are not responsibility takers anything that goes wrong is somebody else's fault okay um and they they have they lack empathy with other human beings other human beings are not real to them other human beings are devices to be used for their advantage or not soon so, so qualifies under so many headings on that. Um, he's right down there in Pavel Young territory, as far as I'm concerned. He is very much the hero of his own story. Oh, well, we all are, I suppose, you know, but yeah, that's, and that's one of the things that Tim does well. Uh, and, and, you know, I, Steve Sterling, Jane and I both uh, close friends. Uh, Steve uh, on his on his Draka novels. Oh, when those came. Beg your pardon. He's coming to dinner tonight. Oh, well, tell him hello for us. (laughs) Okay, we have not seen him at all since Jan died. Um, And yeah, anyway. Um. When the Draken novels, if you haven't read them, by the way, they're very good. But when they first came out, it was like, oh, this is a white supremacist wet dream. He's obviously an awful, terrible, horrible person. And what they failed to grasp is that he had created villains who were the worst villains he could think of, but then he'd played fair with them. OK, you could he he he, he gave you an exposition of how they became who they became. And people mistook that for he must sympathize with them to be able to write them this well, okay? Tim has some of that that same gift, that same ability to write the, this rotten, horrible person in a way that plays fair with that horrible, rotten person's internal geography, okay? Um, and I think that's... A really 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 good gift to have
2: well it just in general adds very verisimilitude to the story because as you mentioned david uh we are the you know everyone is the hero of their own stories even the worst you know villains
3: well some of the most abusive people i've known are not the not the heroes of their own stories and they're taking it out on the rest of the world mm. if you follow me Um, And those characters for me are harder to write than the ones who are the heroes of their own story, but they're there. Uh, And in real life, I think they're in many respects more destructive to the people around them, um, simply because they're lashing out at their own internal demons and taking it out on other people.
4: All right,
2: let's uh, let's move on to Jane's story, which I would probably characterize as tree cat murder mystery. But uh, that's probably not that's probably not fair. Um, Jane, how how would you describe it?
4: Well, you're not wrong, but I think you need to understand the background. Um, one of the biggest challenges we have with doing the the Stephanie Harrington prequels is that um, I can't do a lot of the things that go on later in the honorverse because uh, it's already been reserved that honor and Nimitz are going to figure out things that So, so we're dealing with a dip. We're really dealing with a completely different universe. The star kingdom is not the power it will become later. Uh, Stephanie is living on a colony planet that is still recovering from a devastating plague. Not only don't most people know what a tree cat is, Stephanie and her ally group are desperate to protect the tree cats from being destroyed by people who want to, who would want to take over their land grant lands, etc, etc. So it's not a tree cat murder mystery. (laughs) <laughs> We're actually dealing with the complexities of Stephanie and Carl are the only people who realize that their cat companions are intelligent aliens, and at the same time that they're trying to deal with uncovering the fact that somebody whose death is about to be dismissed as a suicide is actually murder. They have to do it without, ra- without revealing. That the tree cats are the source of their information. So, blat on you. You try and do (laughs) it. It's not easy and it's not fun. Um, Another thing we're dealing with here is. It's fun to read, though. Thank you
2: very
3: much. It's definitely fun to read. read. It's not fun for Stephanie and Carl, but if they wanted to have fun, they shouldn't have signed up for a David Lindskill collaboration. (laughs) Exactly.
4: Exactly. Um, Another thing that we really were doing here is we predate everything. So this is the chance to take a look at a lot of the planets in their very early, relatively early stages. And the previous books, except for a short period where Carl and Stephanie go off to Manticore to go to school, um, we've been locked down on on one uh, one particular, comparatively, you know, pastoral—if mm-hmm. you call, you know, shoot the bunnies and cut down all the trees—pastoral <laughs> uh, planet. And so I really wanted to to embrace the fact that they aren't living in uh, rural 1950s idealized Midwest, but they're living in a three planet uh, colony. What would it be like to take them, Stephanie's only, uh, I think just turned 16 in this book, to take a 16 year old and an 18 year old to another planet. They've grown up on a world that's full of forests, etc., cetera, and give them the challenge of trying to figure out a completely different world while trying to track down somebody who they think has killed somebody else without letting on that the reason they know this is because they've got a telepathic. It's really not a, (laughs) you know, it's not Miss Marple in space, thank you very much.
2: (laughs) One thing I think-
4: But it's not.
2: (laughs) One thing I thought that was particularly effective about this story was with the tree cats and, how you represent an alien species, because there's one pitfall many science fiction writers fall into when they write about, you know, an alien species is they anthropomorphize that species. And they also, you know, there's, there's some superiority versus inferiority mismatch between the two. But I think the way that you portray the, the tree cats is, you know they they might do some things not as well as humans, but they do other things exceptionally better and I think you're a, you show that nuance really well. How did you in constructing the story, make sure that you maintain that balance because like I said, I think it's exceptionally effective
4: thank you um you have to uh boy, where to start this is this story comes after three novels, so I've had a lot of experience writing uh tree cats, because even though uh, my name isn't on the cover of A Beautiful Friendship, Weber, you know, happily wrote to me in early on to, uh, he said, very generously, he said, you're going to be writing in this time period. I want you to see what I'm doing with it. Mm -hmm. So this came after doing Fire Season and Tree Cat Wars. And Tree Cat Wars is very much about how very different tree cat culture is. Um, So I was coming into it like that. I also think I've always assumed that the reason one day on a hot New Mexico summer, when I was out picking beans in my garden and Weber called and said, hey, (laughs) wanna write Stephanie Harrington with me um, is because he knows I do the other well. I don't think like a human. My (laughs) most popular series, a lot of my main characters are wolves. And I've had people who work with wolves you know, contact me and say, I love how the fact that your wolves are wolves, not idealized humans uh, in, in furry form. Um, so I think like, I, I can think like somebody, you talked about Tim Zahn getting well into the head of uh, a, an antagonist. I do a really good job, I think, of getting into the head of things that aren't human. And so that's kind of how I work.
3: One of the the biggest problems that it's always seemed to me when you're writing about an intelligent alien species, there have to be sufficient points of contact between that alien and a human for a human readership to comprehend what's going on and not feel like they're just... Steve White and I actually did uh, a couple of novels with an alien species, so alien, it was even impossible to communicate with them. And they're more a force of nature than characters in in, in the story. The main thing uh, about the tree cats and something that because of the interface, the way that we communicate, humans communicate, cannot really be brought across, Jane and I are trying to do this, is they do not use words at all. We have to use words for their communication back and forth. The reason it took them so long to comprehend how humans communicate is that they they communicate in data packets, if you will. Okay, And the reason they have so many flying things this and flying things that is that for them, When they think about an air car, they're thinking about a flying thing, and they are sending boom. This is exactly what I'm talking about, okay? But they don't have the handles that we have for breaking down the details to explain to another person. They're just communicating them to the other person. And then in addition, the information flow is tied up with the emotion flow. Which is yeah. why it's impossible for a tree cat to lie to another tree cat until they met humans. The concept that somebody could actually tell an untruth was alien to them, not because of virtue on their part, <laughs> but because it had never been possible for them to do it. Um, and so, when I, in, a, in my innocent youth, when I set out to create the tree cats, I had. All this stuff in the back of my brain, but I hadn't really thought about all the implications it was going to have for storytelling when we had internal viewpoint characters who are tree cats. And uh, Jane and I have done a lot in back and forth discussion and and conversation and whatnot to build out the the very bare bones concepts that I had for how tree cat society was was organized and so forth um uh, from the get-go. I mean when I first created Nimitz he just <clears throat> he came with honor. Okay. And I didn't know exactly why he needed to be there, but he he had to be there. Um and by the time I got halfway through Basilisk Station, I had begun to really and truly lay out who the tree cats were and and how they that they function, uh, but it wasn't until well until uh, Nimitz brings Samantha home to the clan in one of the other anthologies that I really started getting into the internal dynamics of how the, the 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 Tree Cat Society is structured for the reader, and that was really all that Jane and I had as our starting point when we started going back to build the steps that led to that relationship that mutual understanding of human and tree cat by that by that later date i have to say guys i originally projected the honorverse to go about eight novels okay i had no idea you know where this was going to go i i love building worlds okay Um, And this one, you know, from my original tech Bible, which was maybe 80,000 words, um, has just expanded, expanded, Tim down here in the lower left quadrant of my screen, uh, bears much responsibility for the, the codification of the stuff that's accreted on top of the original tech Bible. But really, you know, everybody who's ever contributed to one of these anthologies, has done that too because i've incorporated the vast majority of the of the anthology short fiction has been incorporated into the canon of the universe yeah. um and you know and it's been it's been you know um it's good for me to go outside my personal cave of of plato's cave in in <laughs> in writing here um and and get these these other inputs um, into the honorverse. Um, besides that, I've really enjoyed working with almost all of my collaborators um, uh, and and anthology uh, contributors. It's 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 been fun. I try to let these guys write the story that they need to write. With me basically saying, "Okay, here's the framework. Here's how it has to fit into the the you know the overarching storyline." Um, but I've always been a firm believer that if you're going to invite good writers to play in your universe, you have to let them write.
1: <laughs>
3: um, and trying to micromanage. I mean, Jane and I, partly because of the fact that, and and Tim and Tom. And I have this going on too. We're setting ranging stakes for things that are fully developed by honors time. And it's actually easier to go from early to late than it is to go from late to early. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that, but one of them is that you have to bear in mind, there's three hundred flipping years in here for things to develop. So your ranging stakes have to be put in a place that allow you to spend 300 years getting to where you are rather than Mm -hmm. why didn't they get there next Tuesday, (laughs) okay? Uh, And that's harder than a lot of people might think.
0: Um, Really,
4: it's actually really hard. Um, My other short fiction contributions to the Honorverse uh, were set closer to Honor's time uh, with Queen Elizabeth and her brother, and even that was a bit of a challenge because we had to make sure we didn't juggle things that hadn't happened. But ju- so I didn't at first realize what we were up against. With uh, she
3: didn't with- run screaming into the bean patch
4: when I invited her. No, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's been good because um, because when you get to. I like frontier. I mean, I live in New Mexico, you know I like frontier. I like working with the settlement of the honorverse and the expansion of things. I'm married to an anthropologist. Um, again, that's a you know this is a great place for me to be. And what you said, Sean, originally about keeping the ideas separate. Once my brain can split into the two ways of seeing a situation that the tree cats are going to go, I think I think my human is, or my two leg, is trying to figure something out about this. But how do I let them know when I'm not even sure what the question is? It, it becomes really delightful to see these two sympathetic but very different kinds of people working on bridging the gap between them it's just it's terrific without changing them from what they are Mm -hmm. so I love that I don't want the tree cats to become humans and I don't really want the humans to become tree cats
3: one thing that Jane didn't mention is Jane was the first person who specifically asked me if Roger had been assassinated which is the reason that she got to write the short story in which he is assassinated. Okay. She was like, she, she, I can't remember if it was in a phone conversation or an email, but she said, did Roger die of, was his death really an accident? <laughs> said, well, actually, no, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So it,
4: that's, that's it. Uh, the reason this story is set in the Stephanie Carl timeline is because Weber asked me to do one uh, and he let me take them off planet which is something I really wanted to do um, so it was it was a great deal of fun uh, I would have been completely happy to have them just go play tourist you know <laughs> here's a cool, but 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 people reading the stories don't want to just go on a tour so we had to throw something <laughs> in for them to do
3: I have to I say, we, yeah. go Jane. Go. I didn't mean to step I in. I was just go.
4: gonna say we've been on for 45 minutes already, and maybe other people need a chance well, to talk.
3: Well, let me let me throw let me throw one other thing in. I'm working on a current novel where somebody from Sphinx is visiting a friend from Griffin on Griffin in the middle of winter. And the Sphinxian says, only a lunatic or a griffin, but I repeat myself, would live on a planet <laughs> with this climate. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think the to that point, there's two points that I really I wanted to make really quickly before I moved on about the story. The first is particularly about the point you just made, David, about I think the story does an amazing job of describing how someone might feel on a you know going from a much higher G planet to 1.05 G planet, and also in describing the climate. And, And I definitely got the. I don't know where I got the vibe from this story about anthropology, but there's definitely when you when you mentioned your husband being an anthropologist, I'm like, yep, that totally makes sense. I wouldn't yeah. even question it. Yeah, he's a, it definitely he's a, shines through in the story.
4: Yeah, he he's an archaeologist, uh, recently retired from the Museum of New Mexico. So uh, it it's very it's a great resource, staff.
2: All right, well. Uh, uh, and then the second thing I said two things. Oh, the second okay. thing is uh, when I mentioned the the way you handled the races, uh, you know, uh, humans and tree cats. Also, I thought it, it was it was interesting how you 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 how you had the humans reflect off the cues of the of the, of the tree cats, and how while they don't have telepathy, they've had to kind of develop this. Behaviorology, or you know, not even a word, but mm-hmm. you know, tr- like reading their behavior in order to communicate. So I, I thought that was also very interesting how you did that.
4: And I look forward to developing uh, Stephanie and the other tree cat, early tree cat adoptees, um, within mind that if you spend a lot of time learning how to read a completely non-human, you're also going to become pretty darn sensitive to reading humans. And I think that as Stephanie and her cohort grow up, they're going to be just a devastatingly cool group of people because they've had a crash course in, um, in let's look for the nonverbal cues. And I think mm-hmm. that that's gonna be really fun to work with.
2: All right, let's move on to the the Silesian Command. I probably butchered that, but Jan, talk us through the, the Chandler saga and and you know, what this story is about
6: I well I will start with the Silesian Cil- aspect because I've always loved Silesia as a place in honorverse and it's like a failed state in space with lots of corruption and <laughs> maybe given the part of work I'm come from it sort of reminds me of Eastern Europe so uh, it's even named like Silesia and <laughs> and it's been Really great, and we don't hear much about Silesia since the annexation in the mainline honor books, and I asked David about that, and we always hear from in the books like, yeah, they had to send these ships to Silesia, so we cannot use them here, or I remember in the first Saganami book, the Admiral Kumalo is complaining that he's getting less ships than Silesia gets, and and they say, oh, Admiral Sarnoff is really busy in Silesia, so I said, well, can I... Just write a story about that, like to see how busy they are there. and And they would say, "Sure, go for it." and And so I and I had an idea of like renegade heavenite officer getting in league with some dissatisfied former Silesian uh, military people and former Silesian governors who know they it's cannot be business as usual with their corruption and piracy. And I would say that the, originally I was to say that the renegade officer has a sort of Napoleonic complex, but after the previous discussion and what Thomas said before, I would say that he has a Gustav Andermann complex. And, (laughs) And he basically wants to find his own, found his own little kingdom somewhere on the outskirts of Silesia and gradually expand. And as the characters in the book and Eve Chandler discuss it at one point, they say, well... He cannot get away with it, can he? And I said, well, Gustav Andermann did. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so that this idea, and I really had a great time working with David and also with Tom because I kept bombarding both of them with questions about Silesia. And and then I don't remember, we established later that Eve Chandler is going to be the main character. And then I was was asking questions about Eve Chandler, but I was like, to my own devices as to developing her, I, yeah, I've even like, it's not mentioned in the story, but I've written like this her car- a list of careers, like what posting at which date she had, and then I, <laughs> it, and I, and I send it to David and Tom.
5: Yep, which and I love then, that kind of thing. So it's yeah. it's in it's <laughs> in the archives with everything Top else. Was like you know,
6: <laughs> yeah, and of course like I with Eve, I really like the character when she appeared in Short Victorious War and. It was one of the characters that sort of fell off the radar, so I asked if I could, uh, I could pick her up and do my own thing with her. And David graciously said yes. I, I think I basically did the same route as uh, Eric Flint did with uh, Anton. Zavik. Anton
3: Zavik. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Was I was
6: just character. thinking that. Yeah, it was a minor character in the earlier books, and and, and she's been very competent. She first been honors so tactical officer and later her XO and basically deaf, uh, acting captain for a long time while Honor was doing her thing in the field of this honor. And and I took a cue from what Lois McMaster-Bujold says, like, you know, what's the worst thing I can do to this character that they can survive and learn from? And so I, I think it was be interesting to like her, having her really coming to terms with a really terrible tragedy that happened to her and that, after fifteen years of war probably happened to many people in the star kingdom of manticore mm-hmm. and and just make it long term, like not like she doesn't shrug it off in a week or in a month or even in a year. And so having it being slow and gradual and finding her own footing or feet under her I think ground uh, under her feet is the expression. yeah
3: One of the things that Jan did here is something that's very important to me as a writer of military fiction. And that is to show the costs involved. People do not do what Honor Harrington or Eve Chandler or Travis do, and not carry scars from it. Um, And that's one, to be honest, that's the main reason that Honor doesn't regenerate. uh, Because I wanted a, a physical avatar, if you will, of the price that she pays that all military who people who see combat pay uh for the rest of us um and uh when jan started developing eve's backstory uh with uh, with the losses that she had taken and whatnot that really resonated with me as a part of it's kind of like if you write i've said this before at conventions a lot if you write military science fiction in which only characters you don't care about die okay and and carry the scars then it's splatter porn Um and 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 it is dishonest, it does a disservice to the characters, it does a disservice to the readers, and it does a disservice to people who form their understanding of what combat is about through what they read, see on TV, see on the news rather than personal experience. Um, and I thought that this this story, in addition to the the Havenite officer and why on the macro level there are these that are in this You know, this is one of the many snakes that Sarnow needs to club that that are going on here. Did a really good job of that. But it also really resonated with me on that human level. It's good. Well, they're all good or they wouldn't be here, but, you know. (laughs)
6: And I remember me and David <laughs> discussing it. Uh, I think it was we discussed the situation in Silesia and it was on a convention, and it was on one of the Manticons, and we were in your hotel room, and we were talking a lot about, like, how do you decommission ships in the honorverse, and mm-hmm. what is the process, and what does uh, the Silesian fleet composition is like, because it was in the, some of the earlier game books, or some not not game books, but the, the game source books. And there's been some changes since then. And, and I remember that at like 1 a.m. Sharon said something like, you know, guys, I would like to sleep.
5: <laughs> she says I have a lot of cuts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly but power brings temptation and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for earth alone johnny moreau would learn the uses and abuses
0: of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra he woke to the impatient buzz of his alarm and as he rubbed the sleep from his eyes the answer popped into his mind for a moment he lay still his mind busy sorting out details and possibilities. Then, rolling out of bed, he snared his phone and got the operator. Kenneth MacDonald, he told it. The wait was unusually long. MacDonald must have still been asleep. Yes, hello. His voice finally came. It's Johnny, Ken. I know what Chaloner's up to. You do? MacDonald was suddenly alert. What? He's going to take over the Kersiach mines. Another long pause. Damn, MacDonald said at last. That has to be it. Over half of Aventine's rare earth elements alone come from there. All he'd have to do is use the mine's explosives cache to doomsday the shafts and entrances. Ju would have to think long and hard about sending a massive force to evict him. And the longer Ju hesitates, the weaker he looks, Johnny said. And the more likely some of Chalinor's neutral cobras will see him as the probable winner and shift sides. If enough do that, ju will either have to capitulate or risk civil war. Yeah, Damn. We've got to alert Capitalia. Get them to send the force up there before Chalinor makes his move. Right. You want to call them, or shall I? It'd be better if we were both on the line. Hang on. Let's see if I remember how to do this. There was a double click. Ariel, the operator said. The Governor General's office in Capitalia, MacDonald told it. I'm sorry, but I am unable to complete the call. Johnny blinked. Why not? I'm sorry, but I am unable to complete the call. Do you suppose the satellite's out of whack? Johnny suggested, hopefully. Not likely, MacDonald growled. Operator, Syndic Powell Stewart's office in Rankin. I'm sorry, but I am unable to complete the call. And Rankin wasn't far enough away to require the communication satellite. So much for coincidence, Johnny said, feeling a knot forming in his stomach. How did Chalinor get to the phone computer so fast? He could have done this any time in the past few days, MacDonald grunted. I doubt if anyone's needed to talk to Capitalia or Rankin lately. Certainly not since the courier ship left. Maybe that's why he sent Almo Pyre with notes instead of calling us from Thanksgiving, Johnny suggested, suddenly remembering. Maybe all out-of-town contact's been halted. Maybe. Listen, I don't like using this phone all of a sudden. Let's meet at Chris's shop in, say, half an hour. Right, half an hour. Johnny clicked off the phone and for a moment he stared at the little box, wondering if anyone had been eavesdropping on the conversation. Unlikely, but if Chalinor could fix the computer to block out-of-town calls, why not also set up something to monitor all in-town ones? Jumping out of bed, he began pulling on his clothes. One of Ariel's two fully qualified electronics technicians, Chris shared a two-floor combination office-shop-storeroom near the roughly circular area in the center of town which was known... "'presumably for historical reasons as The Square. "'Johnny got there early and waited nervously outside "'until Chris and MacDonald arrived with the keys. "'Let's get inside,' MacDonald urged, "'glancing around at the handful of other people "'that had appeared on the streets "'as the village began its preparations for the new day. "'Chalinor may have hired a spy or two in town.' "'Inside, Chris turned on some lights "'and sank into her workbench chair, yawning prodigiously. "'Okay, we're here,' she said. Now, would you care to explain what we needed me to do here on 5 hours' sleep and ten minutes' notice? We're cut off from both Rankin and Capitalia, MacDonald told her. Chalinor's apparently jinxed the phone computer. He went on to describe Johnny's idea about the Kersiage mines and their attempt to alert the authorities. Besides the water route up the Chalk River, the only land routes to the mines are the roads from Thanksgiving and Weald, he explained. Chaldenor in position to block both of them, and if he can control the river here at Ariel, the Governor-General won't have any way to move in forces or equipment except by air-car. Damn him, Chris muttered, her eyes wide awake now and flashing sparks. If he's fouled up all the long-distance circuits, it'll probably take a week to repair the damage. Well, that answers my first question, MacDonald said grimly. Next question... Can you build a transmitter of any kind here that can bypass the operator entirely and run a signal to Capitalia via the satellite? In theory, sure. In practice, she shrugged, I haven't built a high-frequency focused beam transmitter since my first year at school. It would take at least two or three days' work, even assuming I've got all the necessary equipment. Can you use some of your spare telephone modules, Johnny suggested. That should at least save you some assembly time. Provided I don't overlap one of the regular frequencies and trigger a squelch reaction from the phone computer, yes. She nodded. Readjusting built-in freak settings may take just as long as building from scratch, but it's worth a try. Good. Get to work. MacDonald turned to Johnny. Even if Chalinor didn't set up a flag to let him know when anyone tries to call Capitalia, we should assume he'll be moving against us soon. We'll need to alert Mayor Tyler and organize whatever we can in the way of resistance. Which is basically you and me, Johnny said. Plus those half-dozen pellet guns Chris mentioned last night. He saw Johnny's expression and shrugged uncomfortably. I know, living clay pigeons. But you know as well as I do that our nanocomputers react more slowly when faced with two or more simultaneous threats. It might just give us the edge we'll need. Maybe... All the ghosts of Adirondack were rising behind Johnny's eyes, civilians getting killed in crossfires. What would we be doing, trying to guard the road from Thanksgiving? MacDonald shook his head. There's no way we can keep them out. They can abandon the road whenever they please if they don't mind having to kill a spine leopard or two on the way into town and don't need to bring in any heavy equipment. No, the best we can hope for is to hold this building until Chris can finish a transmitter that'll bring help from Capitalia. Maybe we should try the innocent approach, too, Chris suggested, looking up from the book of circuit diagrams she'd been paging through. As long as they haven't actually invaded yet, why don't we have someone, Dad, for instance, try to drive through Thanksgiving to Sangral and call Capitalia from there? I doubt if Chalinor's letting any traffic travel east from here, MacDonald said. But it's worth a try. You think your dad would be willing? Sure. She reached for her phone, hesitated. Maybe I'd better just ask him to come over and then explain things once he gets here. Chalinor may have put a monitor in the system. The call took half a minute. Eldyarn asked no questions and said he'd be there right away. As Chris broke the connection, McDonald started for the door. I'm going to find the mayor, he said over his shoulder. Johnny, you stay here, just in case... I'll be back as soon as I can.
1: That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to David Weber, Jane Linskold, Joel Presby, Jan Kotek, and Thomas Pope. And welcome once again to Sean Patrick Hazlick. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.